So, turn to the book of Ruth, please. Are we ready, class? Yeah. <laughs> Don't make me get out the pointer. You know, I went to Catholic school. <laughs> Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, which of course was her husband who was deceased, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. We're going to talk a little bit about, actually a lot about Boaz. What does his name mean? It means, um, in him is strength. In him is strength. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go out to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I have found favor. Now remember, Ruth, as an understudy to Naomi, understands, understands things that we're going to talk about today, like the law of gleaning, which is a very important law. I told you last week, it's a, well, it's a way of, of righteous welfare, providing for the poor in the right way. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a few things. One thing I want to just also uh, touch back upon. Those of you who were here last week, and I know that some of you, uh, you know, had a difference of opinion, or, or what you thought may have been a difference of opinion about, as against my opinion about Naomi. I don't think Naomi was a bad person. I want you to understand that. What I do want to make sure is that you understand that we have to map the personalities of these people to the story. Otherwise, we don't get the full effect. And I'll just give you an example. Naomi said that God was, made her bitter because he was the one who took away her husband and then her two sons, widowing her also her two daughters-in-law, including Ruth. And then they come back and they have nothing. They left because they had nothing. They had to sell the land. Elimelech had to sell the land, right? So we're going to talk about also the kinsman redeemer, which is a law she also knew. But I want you to look at this. Naomi is a type of Israel. We talked about that. Ruth binding herself willfully to Israel. Remember she said, I will go where you go and your God will be my God. That's us as grafted into Israel. You see the parallels here? But she being Israel is blinded. She still thinks God is harsh with her. And now whether she comes out of it or not, and I'm sure she does, she's a, her name was Pleasant. She probably did a lot of pleasant things. One of those things which was great is being a good role model for her daughters-in-law who were Moabite Gentiles. They learned so well, at least Ruth decided to stay with her and become an Israelite mainly because of her. You see what I'm saying? And that's a good thing. But I want you to understand the context here is not just understanding a story about a woman and trying to make her look good no matter what. And when we talk about a, a, a person or a character in the Bible, that's fine for general discussion. But what we need to do here is understand and map these in. So now hopefully you see that because we map her personality into the story, she's got the personality of the general Israel, doesn't she? And Ruth has the personality of a saved Gentile, where Orpah... Her, her other daughter-in-law, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, was also a Moabitess. She was a Gentile, but she did not. Obviously, for some reason, we don't know. But she did not have the love for the Israelite. She was going to stay with her people. She decided not to go. Isn't that sort of the way we are today? Those of us who are Gentile, we either come to Christ or we don't. But when we come to Christ, we come to Christ because He is a Jew. Because we know, because we should know, where he came from. And because of what he did as a Jew, and coming back as the king of the Jews in the millennium. That's all I wanted to say. So if I seem like I get a little um, uh, uh, too critical of a, of, a, of a biblical character, please take it in the context. And I want you to tell me about your ideas too. But please understand I am not bad-mouthing anybody, at least, you know, not because I really want to. <laughs> 
Although sometimes it's a good thing that's easy to do. Like we're going to talk about her relying on her Jewishness. Remember, we, we're going to go, not today, but maybe next week. We will next week. Whether she, in, in chapter 3, when she finds out that Boaz, who we're going to find out is a relative of hers, and finds out who he is, uh, she goes, ooh, I can get my land back. We can have provision. Let me tell you, darling, here's how you're going to get that man. <laughs> she did it. Like a true Jewish mother. That's yes. right. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying. Now you're going to see it. Okay. So now that I've hopefully redeemed myself, <laughs> I'm really not that bad a guy. Um, so she's going to. So, so Ruth said to Naomi, "Let me go out in the fields and pick," because she knew of the law of gleaning. So she's going to make get them provision, and she's going to provide for her mother-in-law in doing this. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, <clears throat> as a coincidence, you love that, right? There's no coincidence. This is great. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, which, of course, was whom? Naomi's husband, who was passed away. So now we see that Ruth goes out as a gleaner in the fields to provide for herself and Naomi. It just so happens that she finds herself working in the fields of Boaz, whose name means in him is strength, or something about him being strong. He's, and you'll see in his character, this name well applies. To build the best understanding of where this story is heading and its intent, we need to understand this law of gleaning. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 19. Now remember, the books of Leviticus and the books of Deuteronomy give the, not only the law as it applies to all of Israel, but it also gives the law of how to live in society if you are Israelite. So it's not just Deuteronomy 24 and 19. So we're going to talk about the law of gleaning, and that is more of a social, it's a law. Don't, don't make light of it. It's a law for them, but it is a law that helps society take care of itself in a proper way. And I dare say if our governments understood these laws of society as they were put forth in Scripture, we'd all be better off, wouldn't we? But that's, that's another story in and of itself. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 19, the law of gleaning was a form of welfare for the poor and destitute and was established among the laws given to the Israelites in this particular book. Some laws, by the way, you, if, you, if you researched or looked at it, you'll find that some of them are duplicated. They're in the book of Leviticus as well as Deuteronomy and, and vice versa. So if I take you to one place, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not in the other. It's just the place that I chose to, to uh, find it for you. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 19, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien or the stranger. Not the E.T. alien we were talking about. Maybe. <laughs> leave it for the, if you're, if you're the Vatican, you might leave it for the alien too. <laughs> leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the works of your hands. So you see there is a give and take. You do what you're supposed to do here, and you, and you will be blessed in the work of your hand to produce what you need and also produce for those who need provision from you. Very simple. Verse 20, when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Very simple, very straightforward, very effective laws. And remember, when they were in Egypt... They had to basically be slaves, and God provided them of the uh, produce from the Egyptians as aliens in the land. And what did they take with them when they left Egypt? A whole bunch of their stuff, too, didn't they? 
which the Egyptians, by the way, were happy to give them, or at least that's, that's how I, I, I remember it anyway, or I read it. So the idea is that the owner of a field, or as the owner of a field, you are allowed to go through the field once and only once, leaving whatever was missed for the widows, orphans, and the destitute, even if these included non-native-born citizens of the, of the Israeli community, of any of the tribes, you know, wherever they may be sitting in their land, in any tribe, it didn't matter. It was universal across all 12 tribes. Note also that it was still expected that the poor were to work for their sustenance. Gleaning is hard work. You're going to see this when we talk about Ruth and we see her gleaning. It is hard work. It's not just sitting back waiting for the welfare check or for the food stamps. And then you go to the store and you buy prepackaged goods and you bring them home. You might pop them in the microwave and boom, your work is done. That's not what it's talking about. So they're still working for their food. It's those who sh will not work that should not eat. Both those that want to work but for some reason cannot um, whether they're crippled or, or whatever, destitute because of this, whatever it is, um, they should be provided for. But they still must work as much as they can to show an attitude, right? And so that's what it's about. Um, so why was Ruth directed by the Holy Spirit to go out into this field of Boaz as a quote-unquote coincidence? Right? Could have been, there were any number of fields. That's what they did. They were agrarian, right? They farmed. That's what they did. So why her? Why him? Let's take a look at who Boaz was and why it is imperative that she obtain provision from his field. It, it's, a, it's an imperative to the story. It's also an imperative because Jesus Christ had to come out of the story. You'll, you'll see as we go along. So who was Boaz? Boaz was one of the wealthiest landowners in the area of Bethlehem in greater Judea. Now, where is this? Beth, yeah, but I meant the town. I'm, 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 you're right, but I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm exemplifying or... or impressing upon you to, to remember what town in particular we're talking about. Bethlehem. Right, the house of bread. And we're going to see why that's important. And of course, Bethlehem is within the context of greater Judea. And as we'll see, Boaz is a type of our Jesus Christ, the type of Messiah, or in those days, the type of, of, of looking forward, the, prof, the prophetic forward looking to uh, Jesus Christ, if you want to say it. And he was predicted to be born in exactly this location. In Bethlehem. I'm just going to read you. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read you it in, in a minute from Micah. But just, just listen. You don't have to turn there because it's in my notes anyway. <laughs> but I, I really rather have you listen. As a matter of fact, Boaz was of the direct line of David, God's chosen king, right? Through a son he eventually has with Ruth. But we'll get to that later on. Let's talk about how important this, this is that Boaz be in this, Okay. Remember, how many Gospels are there? Now, you were in this class, you'll know where I'm going with this, but if you weren't, I wanna, I'm going to stress the importance of why we need to discuss this. How many Gospels are there? Good, because I held up four fingers. Not that you didn't already know that. <laughs> why aren't there five, or three, or six, or two, or some other number? That's right. There were four conditions. Only four conditions. Each one had to be met exactly because these are the proof points of who Messiah is. If one of these are missing, it's an exclusive and equation. One and two and three and four equals Messiah. If any one of them missing, the equation does not work. So let's talk about that. Just, just follow me here. I'm gonna give you the scripture references, but please don't turn there because it'll just take too long. Okay, you can jot them down or look at my notes, however you wanna do it. Uh, I'm gonna read from Luke chapter three and verse 21 through 38. Uh, actually, before that, don't go. We're gonna to go to Matthew first. Just, just sit back, Matthew chapter one. What we're going to talk about, let me, maybe more simply state it this way. We're going to look at the beginning of each of the four Gospels. 
You probably, again, if you've been in this class, you know where I'm going with this. We don't have to go through any of the four Gospels in depth to find out what the, the uh, attribute is of each Gospel and to find out why it's important that this be applicable to Jesus Christ, okay? And how Boaz fits into all of this. In the four Gospels, the first Gospel is the Gospel of Matthew, right? And that is to show that the first of the four attributes is that Messiah must be king of the Jews. He must be, okay? He must be the rightful king of the Jews. Now, we've proved that a lot in Scripture, but we're going to go over some of it here. So I'm going to read you um, that who was the real first selected, the real first king of the Jews as far as God was concerned, other than himself, because remember, they rejected him. But who took the throne and was the first real king, true king of Israel? David. It was David. Saul was there, but, but my point was that selected by, specifically, had planned for God. David, the son of Jesse. That's, that's, and if you look at Scripture, Jesus in the is in the line of... Matter of fact, it's still called the throne of David, isn't it? Okay, so that, that's the point. So I'm just going to read this to you. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and it keeps going down and down and down until verse 5, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember who Rahab was? A prostitute. Isn't that interesting? Rahab, Boaz, a man of honor, a prostitute in the line of Christ. Isn't that interesting? But that's okay. It shows a lot of things which we won't get into now. We, we, get, we get into them as we go, but you see where this is. This is. Uh, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and finally it says, and Jesse, the father of King David. So and that's, Ruth's son was David's grandfather. Yeah, Ruth's son, Obed, was actually the father of Jesse, which is, was, was David's father. Okay? And the lineage stops when it finally reaches the point of King David. That's the book of Matthew, isn't it? So Matthew does prove the lineage, at least the lineage, right down to the king of David. So we know that Christ has the lineage to, to, to be a successor to David's throne. At least he's got that. That's the first thing, okay? The next book, you have Matthew and then Mark. Mark shows that the second feature that Messiah must have is he must be the servant, the most humble servant, the absolute most humble servant. And of course he is when he came to die for us in, in our place. If, you'll, if you look at the book of, of Mark, it mostly talks about what Jesus did. Not that he didn't do anything in the others, but it concentrates on more of what he did with his hands and, 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 and in, that, in that orientation. Mark has no lineage. There is no lineage in the book of Mark. You go to the beginning of the book, I don't have to read it because it's not there. Why is that? Because no one cares where a servant comes from. It's what they do that counts. It does not care. You know, in those days, like in the early days of the nation, they had slaves. No one said, you need to be of a certain stock to be my slave. You got good, strong back. You got strong hands, strong feet. You're healthy. You can be my slave. You can be my servant. I don't care where you came from, just as long as you can do the work and do it willfully and humbly. So Mark has none. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Messiah must be king of the Jews. He must be the most humble servant. A, a, a pretty much a servant is nameless. The most humble of servants is nameless, isn't he? As far as the servant 
what a servant does. It doesn't matter. And then Luke, Messiah also must be fully, unadulterated, DNA-proven human. Didn't we talk about one of the reasons why, one of the, one of the things that Satan tried to do was pollute the human DNA? He's still going to do it, by the way, but he's got other intentions now. That's to destroy the human race because he couldn't prevent Messiah from coming. That's why the flood came. But I digress because we've talked all about that. By the way, it's... Thank you. I like what Jesse, Jenny says. It's in his name. It's in his name. So, um, but Luke proves that Messiah is human. So I'm going to just look at the, the lineage that Luke gives about Messiah. In chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, and when he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's a pretty good proof text right there, right? But it goes further. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, he, he was the son so it was thought of Joseph. Now, we've talked about that in the past, and I don't want to get into all of it now, but in, in, in those days, as it should be, when you were an adopted son or you were a half-son of somebody, you, you, could be, you, you're, um, you, were, you were so tightly integrated to that family that you were, became in the line of that man. But truly, the seed came from Mary. We, we saw that prediction in Genesis, right, out of the seed of the woman. Since when does women have seed? We talked about all of that. Here it is. It talks more about it in Revelation, too. But you get where I'm going with this, right? It was thought. And then the son of Heli, son of Ma and it goes and goes and goes and goes. And then we go down finally to verse 31. The son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Oh, so we have that lineage again that includes Boaz. In Matthew, the lineage went down to whom? King David. The lineage ends here in, in verse 37, actually 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. See the difference? There's one more gospel we have to look at. Gospel of John. What's the fourth attribute Messiah must have? Believe fully God. However the DNA works, he must be fully God as well. Well, there's a lineage in John, and I can read it to you. It's a very short lineage. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. There is no problem knowing who Messiah is. Now try telling that to a Jew today or any day, but you see that, here's my point. Boaz is represented in two of those four Gospels as part of the human lineage. The human lineage and also the human king of Israel lineage. That's how important Boaz is in the story. So that's really what I wanted to make clear. I'm going to read Micah chapter 5 verses 2 through 5. Uh, one more proof point is that just as Boaz and his clan came from Bethlehem, it's prophesied in Micah. Guess where Messiah must come from? But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times, that can only be God. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time she who is in labor gives birth to the rest of his brothers. And, and sorry, and the rest of his brothers. Now who is the she who is in labor? It's Judah. It's the Israelite people actually, but giving birth to Messiah. You see where this is going here? 
So um, to join the Israelites, and you can reference Revelation chapter 12 on that, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. We're talking about the millennium here, aren't we? So we're talking about you, Bethlehem, are going to give rise to my king, and then we immediately, almost immediately, when we qualify who that's going to be, we shoot to the future, which hasn't even happened yet. Then he will be their peace, and he will be their, their savior. Right? His greatness will reach the ends of the earth. His greatness has not reached the ends of this earth yet, has it? But it will. By the way, it's not our job to bring that in either. So don't ever make that mistake. There are a lot of Christians, especially tied to the Catholic Church and maybe others, that they believe it's the church's job to bring in the kingdom. It's not. So let's continue in, in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 4. Now that we understand how important it is to know who Boaz is and where he fits in all of this, let's talk about how he fits into the Jewishness or the Israelite lifestyle as a type of Christ in the lineage of Christ in both the kingship of Israel and the human lineage of Jesus Christ. Look at this man's character. Again, we're going to go back to who this man was. An honorable man, a wealthy man, had plenty to give. Not only was he willing to give it generously, but he was also willing to give it as the law prescribed, but to go above and beyond just what the law prescribed in gleaning. You see where this is all going. I love this story. That's why I said it. This is a, a beautiful respite in all of the Old Testament of all of the war and the bloodshed and all of the punishment and judgment and all of that, all of those hopes and dreams of Israel broken and left unrequited until the New Testament comes and, of course, still into the future. This is sort of like a rosebud in this desert. And, and that's why it's a wonderful story. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 4. Boaz was following the law of gleaning, and among the gleaners took a liking to the lovely Ruth. Remember, Ruth just happened into his fields. So just then, in, in chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they call back. Now here's an, a magnanimous man, isn't he? He's looking at his workers, and he's treating them well, and he says, be blessed, be joyful. And they replied back to him. They loved working for this man, and he treated them well. Sounds like a great man. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? He, ah, he spied Ruth. The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters, she went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So she is a worker to provide for herself and Israel. Ooh, isn't that interesting? Faith without works is dead. We are workers. We're gleaning in this world here, which is not our place. And we're also gleaning in the fields of, of our brothers and sisters of Israel. And we're giving back to them their provision. Isn't God say that with what we do? You see the parallels here. Um, verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Isn't that lovely? He's trying to tell her, please don't leave me. I like you. So if you want provision, you can get it somewhere else, but please consider staying here. <coughs> Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the, oh, wait a minute, with his servant girls. These are not just another set of destitute gleaners. These are a special uh, proportion of girls as, as also with the men harvesters who are his employees and they're under somehow under slaves, employees, however you want to say it. But they're of, of a different class of Ruth and that's my point. Yeah, okay? it says maidens. Maidens, okay. Yeah, and they're, so they're of a different class. Mm -hmm. 
Um, uh, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. So now he's protecting her from those guys. And it sounds like he's also, to me anyway, getting a little possessive here, which I think is a wonderful thing. He's going to be her protector as well as she goes out and does this. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So now, not only is she not counted as a gleaner, but she's also going to take of the primary provisions for the workers in the field as, as, as among them. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? It brings tears to my eyes. That's us. That's us. Do you see the progression from Naomi being Israel with this relative who is Boaz, the type of Messiah coming through because he is at the end of the day going to be the kinsman redeemer. But he's also making provision for us foreigners who have no stake in this in reality, and we're not just counted as slaves. Didn't Jesus say that? I call you what? Friends. Isn't this exactly that? It's a beautiful story. Because of Jesus' fondness for us, you and I have been given the privilege of special provision in his rich field of provision, and being a God of jealous love, it is here that he wants us to stay. As a matter of fact, Ruth is told to follow the servant girls and work with them, no longer looked upon as just another poor nameless gleaner, Ruth is brought into the fold and counted as one of Boaz's personal helpers. She knows that a foreigner should not even have a remote hope of such an honor and is utterly amazed at the kindness of Boaz toward her. You see how well she learned what the Israelites do in their laws of gleaning? You see how well she's learned this? She's going to learn a few more things too. Continuing in verse 11. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Remember Jesus said, when someone says, well, when, when have we given you water? When have we visited you in jail? What did he say? When you've done this to the least of my brothers, you have done it to me. What is Boaz saying to Ruth here? I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, a type of Israel, right? Since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that's, that's great. It's, there's a story of us right there. And she responds in kind to Boaz in verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, <laughs> though I do not have the standing of even one of your servant girls. That's us. Do you see the love that Jesus has for us? I'm sorry to get all teary-eyed on you. That's why I don't have contact lenses, I guess. Maybe they'll be floating out. I don't know. We have about five minutes left. Just think of the parallels we can deduce so far. We've gone over them. Ruth is a foretype of those Gentiles who would be willingly be grafted into Israel and love and care for and even help provide for the, those people who is typified by Naomi as Boaz, a wealthy but benevolent man of the highest caliber and standing, becomes an excellent type of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Boaz, finding this woman of wonderful character, countenance, and beauty in his own field. Remember what Jesus says about us? He looks upon us, and God the Father looks upon us because Jesus has covered us. We're going to talk about the hem of a garment next week. It's, it's talked about in chapter 3. But when we are brought into the fold, through Jesus Christ, we're looked upon as righteous, aren't we? God doesn't see us as we were. He sees us as he sees and loves his son and describes us as one of his. So 
He, he loves her countenance, her character, her beauty, and does not let the opportunity escape and immediately to show her favor and give her provision. This is, the only, this is only the beginning of, of this story that, that transcends both time and characters in its prophecy. I hope you're seeing that. That's exactly what we need to tie together here in this story. Now, a lot of you have probably seen this before, but not, maybe not to this depth. I, I want you to understand that I've read this many times in the past, but it wasn't until maybe the last, I don't know, few years that I really started seeing in the context of, of Scripture. Remember, what we're doing here is we're trying to get, build a tapestry. Right? A tapestry does not have a lot, it has a lot of detail in the threads, but you, if you get too close to it, you can't get the full effect. We agree? So it's when you stand back from the tapestry that you get the overall picture of it and the beauty and what it's supposed to be. And then as you move closer to examine each little piece, you can examine the little pieces or the little sections you're interested in the context of the whole. We're trying to build the whole tapestry here. So as you learn scripture from here and study on your own, it'll be so much easier to figure out what it's talking about, how it applies, and better, how to tell somebody else what it all means, right? That's what, that's what we're here for. All right. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Hmm. Sounds like, and again, this is just my opinion, but it sounds like there's a partaking of a type of communion here, doesn't it? What are we doing today, by the way, if you haven't already done it? All right. When she sat down with the harvester, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Life and life more abundantly. And that's not the end. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, now remember, she's a gleaner. She's not supposed to be gathering of the primary produce that's being pulled first. She's supposed to follow behind. But so he's making, not only was he providing for her as a gleaner, and you see she has more than she needs just as a gleaner, because now he's, he's, she's in his home eating of his primary provisions. But as she goes back out to the field where she's going to work as a gleaner, he's now saying um, that she should be allowed to even partake of the primary produce. And he says, even if she gathers among the sheaves, rather, uh, don't embarrass her, rather, Pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Isn't that amazing? It's a wonderful thing. This man loves her so much already that he's giving her some of the best and, he does, and she knows that she's not really supposed to be taking of the primary because she's been taught this by Naomi, I'm sure, and she knows the law of gleaning. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she thirsted, she, sorry, she threshed, she thirsted, she, she didn't thirst, she had enough water. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and um, it amounted to about an ephah, which is about a bushel. She now carries it, after working all day here, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over. So now, she not only brought her what she had gathered, but she also brought out the leftover stuff. So now you see for Naomi, who is Israel, because of Ruth, because of, of Boaz, who is the type of Jesus, she is giving back great provision above and beyond what she needed because Ruth got that from Boaz. Now Naomi gets it from Ruth. You see how it all rolls down? From Boaz back through her, from her, from Boaz through her to Israel and the cycle rolls. That's exactly what it means. This life and life more abundantly came down from Boaz. And not only just life because we're going to stop here in a minute. Um, but a close relationship and the provisions of someone who had close relationships. And of course, it, it, it rolls downhill from Ruth. Now, we're going we're to wrap up here just in a minute here. 
we're going to finish chapter two and then we're going to go into chapter three next week. We're going to talk about some more of these, these laws. But her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, she does not know it's Boaz yet, right? She's got all this provision. By the way, when we bless Israel, do they necessarily know it's our Jesus Christ? Even if we tell them, they don't know who sent us. But they are amazed, amazed at Christians who love them. You ever treat an Israeli nicely? They're amazed because they were already expecting to be denigrated or somehow. So then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I was working, I worked with today is Boaz, she said. And immediately Naomi, oh, the Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Sound good, doesn't it? She added, that man is our close relative. When will Israel know that that man is their close relative? They don't know it yet, but they will. That, and, and he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. When will they know that? Not now, but they will. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish uh, harvesting all my grain. Ah, Naomi. Naomi said to Ruth, the daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, we're going to stop there right now. We're going to start on chapter 3 next week. You see where this is headed. Naomi now is all of a sudden joyful because immediately the law of the, of the kinsman redeemer is kicking in. And remember, Naomi is destitute. She once had land with her husband Elimelech. That land had been sold. What is she going to do? She's got nothing. At least she's got provisions now. And, if, and now favor with Ruth, who, by the way, has now found favor with a, a relative who can now set these laws into motion. Not just the laws of gleaning, but the laws of, of the kinsman redeemer and the law of the Leverite marriage, too, which we're going to talk about in both Deuteronomy and Leviticus next week. So stay tuned. Michael, yes. I don't know if this makes any difference, but the wheat harvest mm -hmm. Time of Pentecost. Oh, that's great. Wait, what I missed that. Time Say it again. The wheat yes, is a type of Pentecost. Was at, was at, the oh, at the time of Pentecost. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I thought you said it was a type. Because it is a type. But you're right. And what did we say about Pentecost, right? The, the Jews typically read this book during the time of Pentecost. But what that's is right. Pentecost to us? The Holy Spirit came, and if you look at the menorah, and I just happened to stumble upon this last year when we were talking about the holy days, you take the three fall holy days, the three spring holy days, and you put Pentecost in the middle, you have a menorah. And I've talked a lot about the menorah design. See how wonderfully this fits together? It gives me goosebumps. Anyway, have a great week, everybody. I will see you, God willing, next week.